0: Hey, it's Chris Garlock. Rich Trumka died this week of a heart attack at the age of 72. He led the AFL-CIO for 12 years, and before that, the United Mine Workers. Trumka, who devoted his life to working people, was a relentless champion of workers' rights, workplace safety, worker-centered trade, democracy, and so much more. He was also a devoted father, grandfather, husband, brother, coach, colleague, and friend. He also loved labor history. Two years ago, he sat down with labor historian Joe McCartan for a conversation for this podcast on the 30th anniversary of the Pittston strike. Trunka's schedule was always jammed. As Joe told me last Thursday, he couldn't help thinking That probably contributed to the stress on Trumka's body that killed him. But once mic'd up and settled down with us in a little room at the AFL-CIO, Rich was totally relaxed, as if he had all the time in the world. We're replaying Part 1 of that interview on today's show, which focuses on the Pittston strike. We've got a link to Part 2 in the show notes, in which Trumka discusses the current state and the future of the American labor movement. One last thing. On Saturday, August 14th, between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Richard Trumka's family is giving the public the opportunity to pay its respects to the labor legend who passed away on August 5th. Rich is making one last trip to the House of Labor a place, and an idea that he loved so much. All safety protocols will be strictly enforced, including mask requirements and social distancing. Complete details are in the show notes and at dclabor.org. Click on Calendar.
1: coal mines back then in the west virginia hills he worked hard to pay his bills most everyone was proud to call him friend daddy was a coal mining man living in the coal fields back then
0: he dug that old Chris Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to Labor History Today on your favorite podcast app, where you can also spread the word by liking and following us.
2: You can't know where you're going if you don't understand where you came from. There are no new strategies in this world. They only are adapted to what you have.
0: On September 17, 1989, union mine workers occupied the Pittston Coal Company's Moss 3 preparation plant in Carbon, Virginia, beginning a year-long strike. Labor History Today's Joe McCartan sat down earlier this week with AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka to discuss this historic strike. Trumka led the mine workers during the Pittston strike and went on to be elected president of the AFL-CIO on September 16, 2009. It says,
3: Wallace helped Nixon win in 68. He's trying to fool us again in 72.
0: In this week's installment of cool things from the Mini labor archives when alan and chloe went looking for materials in connection with a book on democracy demagoguery and rhetoric they came across a fascinating stash of documents relating to the afl-cio's attempts to persuade union voters not to support george wallace during the presidential campaign in 1972 all right here's the show so
1: he black coal. now daddy's grown
4: more work in the coal mines from now on.
1: Daddy was a coal mining man, living in the coal fields back then. He dug
4: that old black coal, worked his fingers to the bone. Daddy was a coal.
0: Thirty years ago, on September 17, 1989, 98 United Mine Workers of America members and a minister occupied the Pittston Coal Company's Moss 3 preparation plant in Carbon, Virginia, beginning a year-long strike. The successful occupation and strike came at the end of a decade of brutal union-busting that had begun with Ronald Reagan firing 11,000 striking air traffic controllers. Labor History Today's Joe McCartan sat down earlier this week with AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka to discuss this historic strike. Trumka led the mine workers during the Piston Strike and went on to be elected president of the AFL-CIO on September 16, 2009. Here's Joe.
4: President Rich Trumka, welcome to Labor History Today. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to be with you, especially in this historic week. Um, we're coming up on a week... Um, that marks a very important anniversary in your life and career. Um, on September 17, 1989, um, a bunch of members of your union sat in at Pittston uh, Coal Company and started a historic struggle, one of the most important in recent labor history. And then almost uh, exactly to the day, 20 years later, you were elected as president of the AFL-CIO, so this is a big week of anniversaries for you, and so I think it's an appropriate time for us to sit down with you and talk a little bit of history, your own history, and also the history of the labor movement. Great. So um, I thought I'd start, Rich, by asking you um, a little bit about, you know, what you absorbed about history and the mine workers growing up in Nemecola in Pennsylvania.
2: <laughs> well, it was... It's everything I am and everything I was, probably. Uh, I learned around the kitchen table, mostly, Uh, because everybody in my family was a miner. I'm third generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both my grandfathers, my dad, both of his brothers, six of my uncles, and a number of my cousins uh, were all miners. And so we talked about the the struggles that miners had. Uh, I learned about uh, honoring a picket line at... uh, before I went to school wow. uh, and uh, believed that they stood in solidarity with workers, that's the only way you made progress. And that's been the pole star of my life. So you learned about the
4: UMW from your dad and his, his relatives and stuff growing
2: up? And it was our life. I mean, the, yeah. the town that I was in, there was one thing you did, you were a minor, and you were either mm-hmm. on the company side or the union side. Right. And so if you're on the union side, you learned about the union very, very quickly. Everything in the town, quite frankly, revolved around the Union Hall. Because mm-hmm. uh, the company owned everything in the town except two things. Wow. They didn't own the Catholic Church, and they mm-hmm. didn't own the Union Hall. So every every event, every birthday party, every dance on Friday night, every wedding, even mm-hmm. voting took place in the Union Hall.
4: Wow. How old were you when you went into the mines? 18. So right out of high school? Right. Yeah. What was it like to work in the mines in those days? Uh,
2: you know, uh, I, I still remember my first day in the mine. Hmm. Uh, I went in the mine with, uh, with my dad, and uh, my dad was a machine operator. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen him operate a machine, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I went underground, i seen see him the first day, uh, and, and I was awed wow. uh, by it. And I came out of the mine, and my, my mother said, What was it like? I said, it was incredible. I enjoyed it a lot. I got to work with Dad. She goes, what was it like watching him? And I said, it was like watching a ballerina dance. Wow. Uh, He was so graceful. I mean, Mm. there was no wasted movement with the machine. It was just like, it literally was like a ballerina dancing. And Mm. he tried to teach me uh, to operate the same way. And I'm Mm -hmm. not sure I ever achieved the same level of proficiency Uh uh, that he had, but I tried real hard.
4: That's amazing. So you saw a side of him on that first day you had not been able to see, probably.
2: Well, yeah, and then my dad and I worked together for a number of years, so I knew him in ways that even his wife and my mother of 60-some years didn't know him.
4: Wow. And so um, you went into the mines, but you also got a degree from
2: Penn State.
4: How, were you, how were you able to do it?
2: Um, <clears throat> I, I first... Uh, uh, went in, and the union saw something in me, so the union mm-hmm. decided to, to help me. Uh, and I would work uh, midnight shift in the mine, mm-hmm. and then I would go to school in the daytime. Uh, travel and uh, to one of the branch campuses at Penn State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, after uh, I ran out all the courses there, I went uh, on a six- and six-month program, mm-hmm. where I'd work in the mine six months and go to school six months. Mm-hmm. I graduated from Penn State, and the union then sent me to law school. And it was sort of the same thing. I weren't mm-hmm. in the mines and went to law school.
4: You didn't do a lot of sleeping in those days. <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> it
2: was good training.
4: <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and so you went to Villanova Law School. I did. Um, and the union sent you.
2: Yep, they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was, uh, I was blessed that they sent me. Came out of uh, the, uh, I came out of law school and the union hired me in the, the legal department here in the headquarters in Washington DC mm-hmm. my first uh, assignment uh, was negotiating the the 1974 by national by two Minutes coal wage agreement I was on the negotiating team Wow as uh, a what 25 year old 24. 24 year old wow yeah. And then I started doing cases. I tried a lot of cases, uh, federal cases, mm. uh, trial level and at the Court of Appeals, uh, NLRB stuff. Tried cases around the country and uh, mm-hmm. did well. I was. We missed a big part of it. Uh, the big part of it was uh, that actually formulated where I am in my philosophy. Uh, I became a member of the Miners for Democracy, right. which was uh, a group of miners that were tired of uh, the autocratic rule that mm. had been established by Tony Boyle and the lack of democracy, right. the fact that we couldn't uh, elect any of our representatives, we couldn't mm-hmm. uh, ratify a contract, uh, mm-hmm. then you couldn't even get a copy of the constitution right. uh, or the contract. They they would tell you we'll we'll tell you when you have a grievance, and so uh, I became a member of Miners for Democracy and. Uh, that had a, a big effect on That was not long opinion. after the Jock Le- Yablonski killing, right? No, I was in the mine, actually, before Jock got killed. Wow! Uh, and I was part of, I knew Jock. You did? Uh, yeah, I was wow. supported Jock in the yeah. election. I was a, our first candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jock got, got killed uh, on New Year's Eve, 1969 into 70, Mm -hmm. uh, he and his wife and his daughter Charlotte were were murdered Mm -hmm. uh, by a henchman that uh, Tony Boyle had sent to kill them. Uh, Because we had had an election that year Mm -hmm. in 69. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a a crooked election. I can give Mm -hmm. you a chapter and verse on that. Because uh, my uh, law school thesis was on the effectiveness of the LMRDA in light of the 69 mine workers election. So I did all the research on it. Uh, but it was a, it was a crooked election, and uh, we were going to get a new election. And Tony uh, ended up dispatching three people from uh, Tennessee to to kill them, and did. Yeah. Uh, and then we uh, got a new candidate. Uh, we had a convention in Wheeling, West Virginia, a rank and file convention, mm-hmm. and uh, elected uh, Arnold Miller to be the presidential candidate, mm-hmm. Mike Trebovich to be the s- s- vice president and Harry Patrick to be the Secretary-Treasurer. And so in this
4: period, you moved from being a lawyer to getting involved more in union politics?
2: Well, I started off uh, when I was at the mine. I I got elected as Chairman of the Safety Committee, and then I held different offices at the local union level. Uh, Then I went into the legal department with the mine workers, uh, and uh, Arnold and I had a... uh, We had some philosophical disagreements. (laughs) Uh, uh, and so I told him that I would resign. Mm-hmm. I went up and drafted out of resignation, brought it down. Mm-hmm. Resigned, went back to the mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when people truly thought I was crazy. Yeah. Uh, going back people into People usually mine. don't go back. in <laughs> with <the> a <laughs> lot of grief. But, you know, yeah. it, it was one of the, it was some of the best times of my life, though. Mm-hmm. I practiced pro bono law. Mm-hmm. I never I never charged a minor for anything, not mm-hmm. even court costs or mm-hmm. filing fees. I, I ate it all. But I did blackline cases, I did the different type of mm-hmm. uh, cases that minors needed help on. Uh, and we even did a few of adoptions and things like that wow. to help minors and stuff. And so it was a fun time, I mean, because I was working in a mine, I was a union yeah. officer, yeah. Uh, and I was having fun practicing law, uh, you know, doing things that I love for people that I love. And um, it wasn't very long thereafter
4: you were elected president of the UMW.
2: Yeah, 82. 82. Uh,
4: and the youngest president, I believe, at least since John Mitchell, right? Correct. Right. So how 30. how did it happen? That's quite a quite a remarkable quick rise.
2: You know, I, I went to the executive board, and uh, all I did was represent my district and try to stand mm-hmm. up for workers uh, and, and not allow the institutional bias or spool of things to, to try to tug me away from my uh love and belief in rank-and-file minors. Uh, and uh, pretty quick, like, it seemed like people started coalescing around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that were on the board, that were looking mm-hmm. for a, a better way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Arnold got sick and Sam Church took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Sam, uh, uh, back at that period of time, there were some some people, I would say, I would call them unsavory. Yeah. Uh, and they were involved, and I asked him not to let them get involved with us. Because mm-hmm. we owned the National Bank of Washington at that right, time. Right. We had a large pension fund. Mm-hmm. And, and there were people that wanted to get their hooks into it. Of course. And uh, he told me he knew what he was doing mm-hmm. uh, the first time. The mm-hmm. uh, second time I went back, and I, I said, this is outside. It wasn't yeah. me making a big pitch in a, an executive council meeting me talking to him privately, uh, saying, you can't let this happen. He said, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third time I got even more concerned, I came in and I said, I just want you to know, I want you to be the first one to hear this. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna run against you because mm-hmm. of what you're doing. I'm not gonna let my union, uh, the three generations of Trump has fought for mm-hmm. uh, and tried to build get taken over by people that care only about raping and mm-hmm. draining uh what people fought for, so I'm not going to do that. What did he say? (laughs) He said, you don't have a chance. Okay. (laughs) And I said, we'll see. (laughs) All right. So you're elected
4: in 1982, and um, one thing we haven't mentioned about that time is it's the Reagan era. So Mm -hmm. you take over the mine workers after a period of turmoil in the union, as we've talked about, um, at a time when employers are trying to break the union. Uh, and at a time when a president is in the White House is probably does more damage to the labor movement than anybody since before Roosevelt. So what was it like to come into the leadership of a historic union in that moment?
2: You know, first we had, we had a number of things that we had to do internally and externally. Uh, the the uh, union was hemorrhaging... Uh, finances. Uh, and so we had to, to take that over, stop it from happening. It was being run sort of like a clubhouse, and so mm-hmm. it was like trying to bring back uh, quality people to take care of it. When we started doing that, uh, and then we started looking externally at, at what we had to do. Uh, you had, uh, we, we had uh, a lot of resources at our hand. You had uh, the money in the pension fund, you had the bank stuff and things of that sort. So we started figuring out ways to make use them to the best advantage uh, of the, the membership uh, to get us strong again. Uh, and uh, we started preparing for what we knew uh, was going to be a battle. Uh, and you remember, during that period of time, everybody, everybody was making concessions, uh, yeah. giving back stuff. And uh, I ran on a, a platform of no backward steps. Mm-hmm. So I said, "We're not going to take concessions. We're not going to go backwards." And everybody said, "You're crazy. This industry's mm-hmm. coming after you, and they're gonna. You're gonna have to give concessions, or you're gonna have to fight." And I said, "We're gonna fight." Mm-hmm. So we began preparing our membership, and mm-hmm. uh, we actually did. Uh, we did two contracts. The first two contracts. Uh, without a strike, no backward step, Mm -hmm. and we made progress. Uh, Mm -hmm. We actually got raises, better benefits, Mm -hmm. uh, and we were, no backward step was uh, adhered to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we uh, ran into a a company uh, by the name of uh, Pittston at that period of time. Uh, And Pittston uh, was headed by uh, the son of a a really liberal senator, Paul Douglas. Mm. uh, That's ironic. uh, He
4: was a great new dealer. Yeah, he was. And now
2: Mm. his son's running this company, Mm. and he's trying to do the exact opposite. Mm. Uh, He has a guy in charge of the company uh, that's a former uh, submarine captain, Joe Mm -hmm. Farrell. Mm -hmm. uh, And Farrell wants to do us in. And we were the second in line. Mm -hmm. Because uh, first, uh, uh, Pittston owned uh, the... uh, armored car business, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Brinks armored yes. car business, right. right? And the Teamsters represented the guards. Mm. Well, they filed a legal suit
4: mm-hmm. saying
2: that they're not eligible to represent be represented because they're security guards, mm. therefore they get rid of them. And the NLRB mm-hmm. at that time, the Reagan NLRB says, mm. you're right. Yeah. So they get rid of them. They bust the Union. Teamsters mm-hmm. are gone out of Brinks. Wow. That whetted their appetite, and they said, yeah. hmm, let's try these mine worker guys next right. and see if we can't get rid of them. So, after we signed the national contract, uh, they said, uh, we're not going to adhere to the national standards. Uh, we're not going to pay health care for your uh, pensioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to get rid of that. You're not They're gonna not going to
4: pay into a plan that went way back to 1950, right? That yeah, John L. Lewis that, helped That to took care to of the, create, the older, right. older yeah. pensioners, yeah. Right.
2: Uh, and so they said, we're going to take you on. And I said, mm. well, you may, yeah. uh, but we're going to we're gonna fight you. Uh, and uh, prior to that time, prior to the, we had a special convention mm. uh, in 1985, and I did two things at that convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I created a strike fund. The mine workers never had a strike fund. Mm-hmm. And it gave me the ability to take 3% of gross wages, mm. uh, including overtime. Mm. Uh, came into the strike fund. And mm-hmm. in in matter of a little over a year, mm. uh, we created a hundred million dollar strike fund. Wow. Uh, which was formidable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we created a strike fund and we did away with the provision of the contract. We used to have a provision in the contract, the My Worker's Contract. It says, no contract, no work. Mm. So they could predict a second Right. that you were going to go on strike. Right. And I said, I'm not willing to give them that kind of predictability. Yeah. So I did away with that. Uh, we got I got the miners to do away with that provision, changed our constitution that gave me the ability to call a strike or not to call a strike. Right. Uh, and so with Pittston, uh, we didn't call a strike so uh, when the contract expired.
4: One of the really interesting things about what you're saying here is that I would imagine that Pittston probably wanted a strike in some ways because you think about how employers were breaking unions in the 80s, like Hormel. Uh, uh, sure. Greyhound. Um, yeah. You know, um, Phelps Dodge and others. So. And and the, uh,
2: the, the the union movement. Right. Desperately needed a win. Right. To break that cycle. Right. Because after after Reagan broke the PATCO, right. He said to every employer out there, it's okay to break unions. Yeah. Go Abbott. Right. Uh, and a lot of them did. You just yeah. named the list, uh, yeah. a partial list. Right. Uh, uh, things people, that happened. Yeah. There were a lot more. Uh, and so Pitson was looking forward to that. Right. They had hired uh, a biker gang to be their scabs. Wow. Uh, and um, they wanted us to go on strike, and we didn't go on strike at first. Mm. We stayed and we worked to the contract, and we didn't for two reasons mm-hmm. go on strike. One, I didn't want to give them the predictability, and right. two, well, we really weren't prepared. Our guys weren't prepared to, to go on strike yet. So we had to train them, and we trained them in peaceful civil disobedience, which was mm-hmm. probably a break from uh, a lot of the past, particularly in parts of Appalachia, where this was happening. Sure. Uh, and So we trained them in peaceful civil disobedience, uh, and we, had, we worked to the rule for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's tough for my guys to work to the rule, because yeah. when they get in the mine, all they want to do is load coal. Right. They're just hard workers, and they don't know yes. anything else. They just, right. they just go do it. Uh, and so uh, it gave us the time we needed to, to train everybody, mm-hmm. to get the word out, to mm-hmm. prepare, to ask for help from the AFL-CIO and the labor room. And you remember, mm-hmm. we weren't affiliated with the AFL-CIO back at that period of time. Right. The affiliation came came right afterward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, the other unions were were incredible uh, in their support and solidarity. Mm. Mm. And then we, uh, after we worked through that, we decided there was an opportune time for us to go on strike uh, because they had orders coming up, and we were able to do it.
4: Mm. And you did use those nonviolent tactics. We did. Um, how did that come about, and um, how successful was that? Yeah, and was, how did your guys respond to that? As you say, this is not in the culture necessarily. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
2: at, at first, they they, they kept looking yes. sort of with the jaundiced eye. And they were wearing those. camouflage, and stuff we did we the, did that uh, for two reasons. Okay, uh, we wore camouflage. One, uh, frequently in the past, when something would happen, mm. uh, they would say to. Uh, uh, a scab or a management guy. Okay, who did that? Right. Who threw a rock? Who did this? And who? Yeah. The guy in the red hat. Yeah. Right. Lying. Yeah. But he had somebody but, to pick out. Yeah. That's how I knew because right. he had a red hat. Right. So we had everybody wear camouflage. And what did yeah. he say? It was the guy in the camouflage. Yeah. We were all an army, a individ- not known more individuals. We were one homogeneous, solidarity mm-hmm. army in solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one reason we did that. Uh, the second reason we did it, it was cheap. Uh, <laughs> most of our guys already had camera. so so it was they wore it hunting. Yeah, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a natural color for yeah. us to, to have, right. and, and it did. It signified the army that we were, and mm-hmm. uh, we were all no more individuals. We were all mm-hmm. one, uh, and it worked out real well. Seemed like the,
4: probably the most successful deployment of nonviolent, massive civil disobedience since the civil rights movement. Maybe.
2: Indeed, we uh, we had probably uh, I, I I think the the records show well, almost five thousand, but in in reality, uh, there were probably uh, almost double that mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't keep records uh, at the first until mm-hmm. they started bringing the the buses in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we asked people... Who got arrested, you mean? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we, we probably had about 8,000 people uh, that got arrested in peaceful mm-hmm. civil disobedience there, mm-hmm. uh, including Lane Kirkland, yeah. and myself, and a number right. of others. But uh, when, when people would say, what can we do to help you? Right. We would say, come to Camp Saul. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camp Solidarity, every Wednesday we had a giant rally. Mm-hmm. Uh, people would come for a the rally, they would send money, they'd bring stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like an infectious thing. Mm-hmm. When you left Camp Solidarity, you were full of solidarity for sure because mm-hmm. you saw it there. Uh, we went, that strike lasted almost a year, not a single mine worker crossed the picket line. Wow. Not one. Wow. Not one crossed the picket line. We That's were proud remarkable. of that. And uh, so miners came from all around to, to help us, and the AFL CIO was a tremendous help. Uh, And the unions were a tremendous help. Uh, And uh, that solidarity allowed us to, allowed our people to give them the the courage to continue on every day.
4: Well, as you say, this was something the labor movement desperately needed after, you know, eight years of Reagan and that disaster.
2: Yeah, because everybody until that time, no one had, had conducted a successful strike until Pittston right. and that really was the turning point. Right. After Pittston, more people started doing successful strikes, mm-hmm. uh, and so it was uh, our our contribution back to the mine, to yeah. the labor movement saying, here's one more uh, place where the mine workers can, can make a contribution and help with the solidarity. I mean, you know our history. Right. Uh, we organized all the major industrial unions with, right. with our money and our organizers and gave them their union. And so uh, mm-hmm. this was yet another way that we were able to pitch in and, and be helpful.
1: United we stand, divided we fall. fall for every dime they give us a battle must be fought so working people use your power the key to liberty don't support that rich man's style of luxury and there ain't no way they can ever keep us
4: Hazel basically sings songs that says, look, the you know, rich folks are getting richer and the folks down below aren't sharing now." than that. It's a basic uh, message that the people we represent and see every day care a lot more about the supermarket than the stock market. And I think it's more true today than ever. It's uh, quite natural you were catapulted really to the upper ranks of labor leaders in the country. And when John Sweeney decided to challenge Lane Kirkland uh, or Lane Kirkland's successor, Tom Donahue, um, in 1995, you ran with him on the New Voices ticket. What led you to think that the time had come for um, a new voice in the labor movement?
2: Lane had done a a, a lot of good things and Lane was a a, a good man Uh, but he was so fixated on international stuff Mm -hmm. that he wasn't paying attention enough we thought Mm -hmm. uh, to domestic stuff you know you went through eight years of uh, Reagan bashing us and you know everybody was just saying ho hum ho hum Mm -hmm. and so we thought we needed uh, a break Mm -hmm. uh, to get around there and I had I had no intention of running. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were five or six, well, there was eight unions, I think, when we first got together mm-hmm. uh, that started talking about how we changed things. Right. And, and the first thing we did, it, it wasn't mm-hmm. about running. Yeah. It was about going to Lane and getting Lane to focus more on domestic stuff. Right. And so we went, the, the group uh, was led by, uh, at that time was led by Jerry McEntee. Because mm-hmm. I was just, of AFSCME, yeah, AFSCME, yeah. Of AFSMA, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there. Uh, Owen Bieber was there. Uh, George Becker was there from the steelworkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and Bieber of the auto workers. Bieber of the auto workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, several others, you know, that were 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 there. A uh, uh, number of the building trade unions uh, were mm-hmm. with us. Uh, Arthur Koya from the laborers was mm-hmm. there. You know, mm-hmm. so we had we had a number pretty broad of broad group, mm, yeah, yeah. pretty good group, yeah. And, and it, it it wasn't about mm-hmm. running against Lane. It was right. about us showing him the breadth of support for him to to help starting with help domestic stuff, right. help us with domestic issues and what we're doing here. Not mm-hmm. just worry about international stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he, uh, I I was surprised by his reaction. Mm-hmm. What was it? He he was almost like he was insulted by it. Oh, really? And it was a a quick rebuff. Mm. It wasn't really a conversation. Uh, And and so we went back and we had some more meetings. And we said, he doesn't seem receptive, but we need to to give him another whirl at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Jerry and uh, uh, two others uh, went in. Uh, to see him, John Sweeney was, was yeah. one of them at that time. I uh, went in and I wasn't with that, that group the second time. And mm-hmm. uh, They came back and said the response is pretty much the same. Mm. And so it was that group. Then it's, yeah. the group started morphing. Right. If you can't do it this way, how do we do it? Right. And so what happened uh, is uh, we started planning. And, yeah. and we still weren't thinking about running something. We went to Tom Donahue The group, as a group, went to Tom Donahue and said, "Tom, you need to to run." Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I can, in retrospect, yeah, I can really appreciate Tom's position. Tom
4: was the number
2: two, right? Yeah, he was Lane's number two, and he goes, "I'm not running against Lane." Yeah, and we said, "You got to." Yeah, and he goes, "I'm not." and you know, I didn't fully appreciate it then yeah. as much as I do now. Yeah, uh, You know, there's a, a lot to be said for that loyalty. type of loyalty, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we said, if you don't run, we're going to run someone mm-hmm. against you guys. Mm-hmm. And we think we have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And so he said, uh, I'm not running. Mm-hmm. So... Then we announced that we were going to announce candidates, and uh, John Sweeney said they, they wanted him to be the the president, uh, and, and I was for that because he was a good guy, he was a good leader, I I liked him, I knew uh, his qualities, an yeah. honest good man, yeah. Uh, and they said, and uh, you're going to run for Secretary Treasurer? I said, the hell I am! <laughs> <laughs> Where in the hell did you get this at? Right. Uh, and uh, I really resisted. It. And, uh, well, you were leading a union, right? And I loved were, the job yeah. that I had. I That's loved right. being with the mine right. workers, my, my union. So I went home that night, and, and I called my dad. I'm mm. um, 40-some years in a coal mine. Yeah, My dad had the uncanny ability to, to cut through the crap and give you the straight stuff and nail your feet straight to the floor. Mm. And I said to him, Dad, they, we have this group going. He goes, uh-huh. And I said, and they want me to, to run for secretary treasurer. And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, and I don't want to. And he goes, uh-huh. He goes, boy, you started a goddamn thing. You better finish it. Get your ass in and do what's right. And Whoa. Hung up on me. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I want to go home, <laughs> I got to run now. All right. So I did, and that literally was what pushed me to to do it because I had I had no intention of doing it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it. I loved the job I had. So then we ran and and we won and we were we started changing things.
0: We'll have the conclusion of our interview with AFL CIO President Richard Trumka in next week's edition of labor history today. Here's this week's Cool Things from the Meany Labor Archives.
3: Hello, everyone. Um, we're here with another episode of Cool Things in the Meany Archives. I'm the archive specialist, Alan Weirdak, here with our student assistant, Chloe Daniel, And today, we're going to talk about George Wallace. Oddly enough, um, some of y'all may remember George Wallace as a segregationist at best, um, a presidential candidate at a point in time. Um, I think most of us remember George Wallace um, less than favorably, to say the least. So we're talking about George Wallace today because um, we were pulling some items and doing some research around an upcoming open house um, surrounding a new, uh, we have a first year book program at the University of Maryland, and the book that is being presented this year is about democracy, demagoguery, and rhetoric. So... Basically, we went through our collections, and we were trying to find out times where the AFL-CIO, um, either administratively or beyond, talked about demagoguery and political rhetoric. And what we found, first and foremost, was uh, a interview with George Meany um, done in his office at the AFL-CIO on August 28, 1975. This is from our Office of the President collection. And... Basically, it's about a 12-page uh, text document transcription of an interview, and on the 10th page, towards the end of the interview, um, the reporter asks uh, President Meany uh, if he could support a ticket with with George Wallace as his number two, Meany as. Um, in response, direct quote, no, I couldn't. I couldn't even if it were number 10. I couldn't. No, I'll tell you something. I feel kind of sympathetic. I feel a kind of kind of a sympathetic feeling toward Wallace. I think the guy got hurt. I talked to him. He wanted to see me. I met him a year a year or so ago. He hasn't the slightest idea how to run this government or any government as far as I'm concerned. He's the perfect political demagogue. If you hate Catholics, he'll sell you a white sheet so you can demonstrate against Catholics. If you hate Jews, he'll sell you another white sheet. Uh, I mean, the fellow has no political philosophy. He knows absolutely nothing about foreign affairs. He's against the tax collector. And he goes on basically talking about George Wallace as this demagogue. So from here, we basically opened up this can of worms where we started looking into um, records and materials in our collection uh, surrounding George Wallace. We actually found some really interesting stuff. Um, First and foremost, so what we basically found was kind of this This picture of George Wallace, so we found a folder in our civil rights records, um, basically of kind of like promotional material working against Wallace, kind of trying to generate solidarity against the Wallace campaign, kind of pro-Humphrey against Wallace. And what we found in there, um, so we found a couple of like pamphlets, and one of them is addressed to Florida workers. And on the front of it, it has the face, the drawing of George Wallace. And it says, Wallace fooled us once. And then if you open it up, it says, Wallace helped Nixon win in 68. He's trying to fool us again in 72. And basically, it shows how Wallace helped Richard Nixon win. So, And at the bottom of it, it says, a vote for Wallace counts for Nixon in 72. So essentially, what they're trying to show... Um, Whoever this pamphlet is distributed to is that if you don't want to repeat a you know a repeat of Nixon, then don't vote for Wallace. And it basically says, here's what the Wallace-Nixon team has done to working people. And it shows how the cost of living has increased both in Florida and in the rest of the nation. Um, talks about how the Davis-Bacon Act in 1971 stripped construction workers of wage protection. Um, so and it also says, be sure to vote, but make sure your vote counts. It says count. I should say counts. I digress. Um, then we have another one that is a warning pamphlet. It's kind of done like envelope style. It has a stamp that says 1968 Alabama. And it says, an open letter from Alabama unionists. Warning, Wallace, no friend of working people or their unions. And then you open it up. And it's kind of like another fact-based uh, kind of document basically around why not to vote for Wallace? So it says, don't be taken in by Wallace's law and order pitch. In 1965, while he was still governor, the murder rate in Alabama was the highest in the nation. FBI statistics show the rate was 11.4 per 100,000 persons opposed to a national average of 5.1. Um, so he's just it's kind of what they're doing is they're defeating a lot of Wallace's rhetoric. Um, and their final message is, quote, George Wallace fooled Alabama. For six years, he kept the race issue up front so no one would notice what was going on in back. The state stood still, and its people suffered. Don't make the mistake we made in Alabama. Don't be so taken in by Wallace's appeals to prejudice that you forget your own pocketbook. We did, and we've been paying for it ever since. Believe us, it's a high price to pay. And then, one of my personal favorites that we found in this folder in the Civil Rights Records It has the cover of Do You Want Police Dog, Billy Club, and Firebomb Law and Order? Basically, what it's saying is that that's what you get with a vote for George Wallace. It says, former Alabama Governor George Wallace is campaigning for president on a platform of Law and Order. He doesn't spell it out, but if you go on past performance, this is what Law and Order means to George Wallace. And it shows images of police dogs attacking civil rights protesters, Billy Clubs being used, and firebombs. So, And then it also repeats the same language found in this open letter um, from Alabama unionists about the murder rate in Alabama at the time. So it's just really interesting, this broader mobilization against Wallace. And then what I found particularly interesting is that in another folder in the president's files, there were all these letters from rank and file union reps. Um, generally in the South, generally in Alabama or Georgia. And this one letter, and a lot of these letters were really sympathetic to Wallace. And I was not expecting that. So we have this one letter from October 21st, 1968, um, written by S.E. Doc Everett, um, who calls himself, uh, quote, if I'm not the oldest union man in the United States, I am pretty close to him. He joined he joined the uh, railway train men in 1912 and joined the order of railway conductors in 1918. So he goes on to say that basically he suggests uh, casting, you know, everybody casting their vote for Wallace for president saying, quote, it's time that we make a change in the heads of this government. If we don't, in five years from today, I predict that we will be living under the domination of the Union of Soviet Russia. We know what the Democrats will do. They will lie. They will steal and lie. And we know what the Republicans will do. They will lie and steal. What we need is a new deck and not a new deal. What I noticed from there is kind of how this rhetoric is still used today, being mindful that the debates have been going on. You know, the most recent debate was – this is actually recorded uh, the day after the most recent debate. So we had another pre- uh, presidential candidate debate last night. So it's really interesting to see how a lot of this rhetoric has evolved between 1968 and 2019. Um, Chloe, what did you find like most interesting, appealing? Why is this stuff so cool?
5: I think it's cool because... A lot of this sort of reflects some of the some of the similar things we're seeing today especially with this focus on sort of law and order um you see that a lot when people are talking about sort of immigrants especially um and uh also anti-semitism there's a, another um kind of smaller like pamphlet like a bound pamphlet uh titled who's behind george and the first page uh opens and the title is. Racist, birchers, anti-Semites, and basically just talking about um, the way the, the far right supported him and kind of threw their, um, their weight behind him. And just a lot of similar rhetoric that you see used today, which is pretty interesting, I think.
3: And then what – so the, the document that you're looking at, um, what what is it? Because we found it really interesting. It's like, what, 10 pages? It's not formally a labor publication, right? What, what organization – who put it out? When when did it come out? Because like, it mentions a lot of like strange things like links to fascism. And,
5: yeah, oh yeah. So first it's uh I guess it was sold for 35 cents and it was put out by the Institute for American Democracy. Um
3: What's the title of it?
5: Who's Behind George? And quite a lot of this document is just like timeline basically but of
3: within the first page, it's like who's behind George? And it says racist birthers anti-semites. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. who's behind George Wallace, according to the rhetoric produced in this pamphlet.
5: Yeah, it's a, it's pretty interesting. It has a pretty detailed uh, timeline of some of the decisions he's made, the more questionable decisions. That goes on for quite quite some time. It's all sourced at the bottom. This is, what, how many pages is this document? It's like... It's
3: so over 10. It's like almost 20? Yeah, it's
5: like probably 20 pages. And
3: it's a mix. There's like images, timelines.
5: Yeah, I think at the back here, um, it has different, like... Ties to organizations in specific states, also. Whoa. Yeah. Um, not not it doesn't have every state listed, but a lot of southern states. Okay. And some of the more swing states, I guess.
3: Hmm. Yeah. No. It's, it's strange the states that are mentioned in there because I specifically noticed that Maryland couldn't be found, but Massachusetts could. So it's obviously not not limited to the South. But it's really strange the states that get omitted and why.
5: Yeah, they kind of point to two specific. Um, Organizations, though, uh, they put um, in parentheses the White Citizens' Councils and the John Birch Society is two of the main ones. Huh.
3: And it's just, it's really amazing um, the kind of, so another, another document that we have that I found really interesting is this letter from November 27th, 1968. And it's a letter to Donald Slayman, who was the head of the Department of Civil Rights for the AFL-CIO. And it is from the machinists. And it's from Don Ellinger, the, uh, or W. Don Ellinger, the director of the Machinists. And basically, he's talking about this, um, you know, they have an upcoming planning committee meeting um, in between January 27th and January 31st, 1969. And basically, they're talking about, they want to generate a discussion of how to deal with the Wallace threat in our own local unions. And quote, we believe that the 1968 elections show that At least this union had not adequately prepared its own members to prevent serious erosion by a race baiter. And it talks about how we are interested in successful programs that others have conducted or practical suggestions on what the international district and local organizations should do. So it's really fascinating to me to kind of see this letter and then see all of these pamphlets generated not necessarily all from the machinists. A lot of these come from the AFL-CIO's Committee on Political Education, um, you know, better known as COPE. So it's just, I was really fascinated to see, because we just started looking for mentions of demagoguery in the collections for an upcoming open house. And it opened up this fascinating can of worms um, surrounding George Wallace, and not just against George Wallace, but it was really fascinating to see this folder of letters sent to George Meany, basically in support of Wallace. Um, A lot of these letters were handwritten and in somewhat illegible cursive. So I only um, reviewed the one typed letter, which was this letter from the quote, uh, one of the oldest union men in the United States. Um, But yeah, we have all, we have all of this material that we're just um, scratching the surface on George Wallace. So if anybody is interested in this history, anybody remembers this history Please reach out to us um, because this we have a lot of stuff for anyone who's fascinated so or interested. Uh, So this has been another episode of Cool Things in the Media Archives. Uh, I'm the archive specialist Alan here with our student assistant Chloe D'Angio, and uh, until next
1: time.
0: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Tune in next week for the conclusion of our interview with Richard Trumka on the 30th anniversary of the historic Piston Strike and the 10th anniversary of his election as president of the AFL-CIO. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, where you can also spread the word by liking and following us. Thank you for doing that. Today's music included Daddy Was a Coal Mining Man by Paul Adkins and Rich Man's Coal by Reverend Boz and the Dirty Deacons. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Menefits Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history